Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Inside the Exorcist ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Hi, I'm Mark Ramsey, and this is a very special bonus episode of Inside the Exorcist. I am really pleased to have with me my co-conspirator. Is it co-collaborator? Is it collaborator? What is it, Jeff? I like conspirator better. (laughs) Jeff Schmidt, he is the amazing, and I truly mean that from the bottom of my little uh, shrunken heart, amazing audio designer, sound designer who created all the audio magic that you hear on Inside the Exorcist. It really is, I think, um, one of the most impressive uh, feats I've ever heard in the space. Um, That was our aspiration, and Jeff, I think you certainly achieved that. Well, I'm extremely flattered, and knowing your history and background in in the audio space, it's uh, it's extremely flattering. That, uh, that it came off that way for you. And I'm, I'm glad, I'm very happy with it. Well, uh, cool. The purpose of this conversation is to kind of, I guess, tip our hand a little bit and let people see kind of inside the factory at what went into making this series. I want to talk a little bit about kind of my conception for it originally, how that evolved, um, how you came into the picture and really the magic that you created, which was really quite all your own and independent of me, um, which is why I loved it so much. So, um, so let's get into this. Um, first of all, I want to talk, I want people to know who you are and what your background is. So let me start and then you fill in the blanks. Um, you have spent your career doing amazing audio uh, production for broadcasters in the video game space. And uh, am I allowed to say that you've worked with Apple? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I just can't talk about what I'm doing. That's all. <laughs> Jeff, what are you doing with Apple? <laughs> <laughs> I'm called Stealth Audio Ninja. Really? Is that what you're called there, for real? <laughs> well, that's what, that's not a technical title, but uh, yeah, it's pretty much it. I like that. So what if I left... That's what I'm allowed to say. I, I've given a brief overview of your background. What have I left out? I think that's it. Radio, mostly broadcast radio, commercial radio, uh, video games, certainly, um, on both technical and uh, uh, sound design side. Dabbled a little bit with visual media and films, but uh, podcasting is probably the first thing that kind of really draws together... Uh, my design experience with with radio, which doesn't really demand this level of uh, of a of a treatment that we did with this. That's right. And radio, or in video games, which does demand this treatment, but they also have visuals to help seal the deal, where we don't have that here. So it was a unique challenge to kind of do that in podcasting. And I think it's worth mentioning that not only did you do the work on Inside the Exorcist, you created the sound design for Inside Psycho as well as for Dirty John, also with Wondery and Tides of History, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really uh, um, a complete oeuvre, if you will. <laughs> um, the, the way we came together on this, I think originally, well before the podcast conception came to be, was that I had this notion that um, audio was kind of underexplored, that audio was underappreciated, that audio was very much a lost art, that nobody knew how to create great and compelling audio anymore through the use of sound. They could do it through narrative. They could do it through story. I mean, public radio has been doing that for years. But in terms of using the environment, using the audio around us all, uh, the thing that takes a movie and makes it actually a movie is the sound, not the pictures. Right. And... um, that's when I uh, connected with you, and you, of course, were working in this area and agreed with that wholeheartedly. And then I eventually had this idea for this podcast um, and brought it to you. 
And correct me if I'm wrong at any point, by the way. And you, uh, the idea was to go inside the making of Psycho, but to do it through uh, some kind of elaborate storytelling, uh, first-person storytelling, narration uh, storytelling, character-based storytelling, a little bit of role-playing, but but really told more like the like a storyteller would read a storybook to you know a child, not. St- told like radio theater, so to speak, right? Yeah, I think we both kind of had a, an equal, I won't say disdain, but we were unhappy with kind of the current state of what that radio drama or radio theater was coming off as. And, and I think this is, you know, the approach that you kind of decided on was, was a, it, it wasn't even really a happy medium. It was just kind of like, let's just not do that. Uh, but still not just make it an audio book where the entire narrative load is carried by words Let's leave room in the script and know ahead of time when you're sitting down to write, you knew ahead of time that you wanted to have sound play a really big role, which is the opposite of the way most stuff is done. Most writers will sit down and write their whole thing and then just write, 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 and everything is in the black words on the page. Um, And then they come later and say, well, maybe we should add sound to this. And then it feels tacked on. It feels redundant. It feels unnecessary. And you are able to avoid that by knowing your plan ahead of time is to leave space, is to not fill the page up with with text and and to leave space. And, and that's really strong for a writer to do because most writers just like to fill the page with words. That's what they do. And for you to kind of hold back on that or at least take it out of the narrator's role and put it in scene notes. Like your details are still there, but instead of the narrator telling you all those nitty-gritty details, you're putting them in scene notes to leave room for the sound to kind of like flesh that world out. So I think that's that's the big the big distinction I think I make with your writing versus a lot of the stuff that I hear in the space that tries to use sound. Well, and I, I think too it was an intentional effort not to create an audiobook. Um, which is, you know, a, a literal distillation of a, of a book to audio. Right. Um, that wasn't the purpose here. The purpose was to create something else. I think my conception as I was going through this was to create what I eventually came to call an audiographic novel, um, because it really is. It's short, bite-sized segments that are built around the ability to, I mean, if, if there wasn't something I could write for audio um, where audio could enhance it, I tried to stay away from it. And in fact, you and I had that conversation early on when you said, you know, your writing's going to ha- really have to be, <laughs> you're going to have to write with audio in mind. Remember saying that to me? Oh, yeah, totally. Because just for the reason I just said, because so much of the stuff I was hearing was, you know, writer sat down, knocked out pages, turned it over to post production to add sound and music. And that always just sounds not as. Uh, you know, you know what you were able to do with that note is really just leave the space for it to 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 have a role and not just feel like it was tacked on. The other thing that I think is kind of interesting about what we achieved here is I think there was a conscious effort, certainly on my part, and your audio helped this immeasurably, to to make this less of a pure. I didn't want it to be a director's commentary. I didn't want it to be, hey, here's a literal A to Z of what went on during the making of Psycho or The Exorcist. I wanted it to be kind of a more like a biopic. Yeah. Uh, people would say, hey, is every minute of this true? And I would say, well, I don't know. You tell me. When you <laughs> see The People versus O.J. Simpson on television, um, written by two of Hollywood's best screenwriters, is every second of that true? Um, do you give that more uh, space for fiction because it includes actors you recognize? Um, is that the only reason why? When you see Feud, 
with uh, you know Joan and and um, uh, Betty uh, on FX. Um, do you assume that that's a literal remaking or a little literal description of the making of Baby Jane, or is it something bigger than that? Yeah. Um, and my, my intention all along was to create a story bigger than that, really a story b- built around the characters. It's really less about the making of Psycho and the making of The Exorcist than it is about kind of the the making of the people who made um, those movies. Yeah, because their <laughs> their stories are are as as fascinating as the actual movie itself sometimes. And I'm so glad you actually brought up the the whole question of is it true or not. And and I, early on in my podcasting experience of just consuming podcasts, I think there was the audience was kind of seeded from a journalism from NPR, and and so there was a lot of. St- expectation of the wider audience at that time that everything you hear is literally journalism. It's fact. It's true. Uh, right. t- TV's had a lot of time to, to, to evolve past that. But TV also has the advantage of, like, you knew with Feud, for example, that that wasn't really Betty Davis, right? Like, you knew... That's true. You could just look at it and know. Audio is... It's a little harder because it. I think the audience is largely seated with people who are fans and, and uh, uh, consumers of public radio-style journalism in the podcasting space, that they, they come to it with the expectation that the things that they're hearing are literal truth. And it's harder to detect unless you tip your hand. And I think we're pretty clear, like some of the stuff we're doing is pretty obviously not true. Um, but, you know, some people, if you come to it with enough expectation that it's supposed to be true, I think that's probably where some of those people might have had that perception that, is, did that really happen? Um, like Like all biopics, which is really how I see this thing. You know, you're trying, you're, you're using facts to tell a larger story because there's no point in telling the story unless you can tell a larger story. And I mean, I'll just spell it out, although anyone who's listened to the series, I hope inherently feels this, that, you know, the theme of, of, of Inside Psycho was really what happens when you bet it all and have this amazing success and then have to follow it up. What do you do for an encore? What happens when you can't, figure that out what happens to you and that was really what inside psycho was about and it was incredibly poignant too it, and as a creative person i remember working on it and just thinking like wow this is <laughs> this speaks to so many of my own experiences in just making stuff yeah it's a, i'll tell you one of the best uh, bits of feedback i got was from someone who listened to i think episode 1 of inside the exorcist and her comment was so many emotions yeah and I thought, yes, that's exactly right. We went from, you know, this guy committing suicide to this woman on horseback to, you know, cowering for fear because her parents were fighting uh, to a man being electrocuted. I mean, that's that's called running the gamut. Yeah, <laughs> no holds barred. <laughs> and, then, and then for Inside the Exorcist, the theme was really, it's spelled out in the final, it really in my favorite scene. And, you know, I'm finding... More often than not, that my favorite scenes of these things are the things that have kind of an emotional bow, bow to them. Right. You know, I wrap a bow around something, and um, in that case, it was the in the final uh, chapter, the scene on the hillside in Bel Air, where Billy Friedkin is there with his wife Sherry Lansing, and you know he just kind of fancies what his life would have been like if all the projects that he had made, all the dreams that he had, had materialized, and she tells him a story. Which, uh, which uh, the bottom line of which is, look, you may not get what you want out of life, but you get what's yours, and one way or another, you need to embrace that. 
Sherry, do you ever think how, how different our lives would be today if this town hadn't turned its back on me? If all those dream projects inside my head had actually gotten made? Sherry was still watching the horizon. She swirled the wine in her glass. She said, Billy, when I was a kid, kindergarten, first or second grade, I don't remember. One day the teacher gave out sheets of colored paper. She had us fold the paper in quarters and cut out small sections at the edges. Then and only then, she told us to unfold the paper. I remember (laughs) being amazed at this strange snowflake I had made. It looked pretty bad. Then the teacher collected the snowflakes, shuffled them and handed them out so that everyone got somebody else's snowflake. This was the one we would take home and keep forever. I remember, I remember I started to cry. The snowflake she gave me was bigger and more beautiful and more perfect than the one I had made, but it wasn't mine. And I think that's a totally different theme than the theme of Inside Psycho. And anyone who goes into these things saying, well, all I want is a rundown of what happened during the making of the movie, I think they're going to be, hopefully they'll be delighted by this something extra. Meanwhile, anyone who stays away from these shows because they say, well, I'm not really interested in The Exorcist. Well, you know, (laughs) are you interested in um, uh, Baby Jane? Because Feud was bigger than that. I... I, I, I hope that people who appreciate this, these both these series get a sense of the larger picture, you know? Well, either they do or they don't, kind of like that's the, <laughs> that's the theme of The Exorcist. Like you might not get what's, what's, uh, what you would expect it, but you get what's coming. And, uh, <laughs> I get, right, I get what, my deserve, what I deserve, whether you understand it or not. That's exactly, exactly right. Yeah, yeah, By the way, I think it's worth, as I describe these things, I think it's worth noting too that, you know, the inspiration for this whole series came from, was really more than anything inspired by a movie that I think is just about 20 years old now called Gods and Monsters. Uh, do you know that movie? I don't. No, Bill Condon movie uh, about the the uh, about the making. Uh, well, ostensibly about the making of Frankenstein, um, and the director of Frankenstein, James Whale, and it's really kind of all about the transformation of James Whale and uh, what he went through at that point as a kind of a, a, a gay man in Hollywood at a time when um, there weren't any famous gay men in Hollywood. Not. Not any known famous gay men in Hollywood, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's, but it's, but because it's kind of this dreamy, um, true, not true. Sometimes obviously not true. Other times, obviously true. If you look at that movie, you should watch that movie. Take a look at it again, because you'll see that it's just this, this like incredible um, um, burst of imagination around something that was true, but something that's clearly not true, and kind of the line between. What did somebody call this show? Meta? Meta what would what they call it? What, what, what was the term? I forget. I mean, that, that was, yeah, they were calling it meta, but I don't remember what meta it was. Meta fact or something like that? Metafactual? I don't know. <laughs> well, I think that's, that's, that's honestly, like for a designer, that's the most interesting kind of show to work on because you get to blur the lines and bend and you're not moored to, oh, did this, this has to be a factual representation of, 
you know, it's like uh, I watched, uh, what was it recently? Uh, um, uh, it was the Zodiac, right, movie uh, that Fincher made. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the facts are, are there. Like, this stuff really happened. Um, but they take, and they, he spends an inordinate attention to detail and getting the details right. Stuff that most viewers won't ever notice, but it creates a whole. But it's not a documentary. It's not moored in the tradition of, a strict journalism. So there's artistic license, which, which is, I think, what you're talking about with that, with that uh, show, Gods and Monsters, uh, and your inspiration for that to bring that to these series, to use it as a leaping off point to be creative, to tell stories, to embellish, and uh, be creative. To have a theme larger than the the whole. That yeah. was really the the mm-hmm. point. And by the way, in the in the Fincher case, it's interesting that he would obsess over details like, is this the right car? You know, are they driving in the right neighborhood? Is the T-shirt right? And then, of course, they're inventing dialogue. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, because you have to. Um, so, yeah, well, that's right. You have to. Um, so that's really interesting. But I want to talk about, you know, kind of in from from your perspective, what makes the sound so special here is that really the sound is the the co-star of the of the series. There's no question about that. Um, how did you feel about? Uh, take me back to how the original film, in the case of The Exorcist, influenced the decisions you made sonically for this series. Uh, well, I hadn't seen the movie in a really long time, and in fact, I can't even say that I I had originally seen it because it's a little before my time, um, had, I can't even say that I had seen it all the way through. So when you told me that this, is, this was our follow-up to, to Psycho, it's like, okay, well, I, I have to watch this, and I'll get the director's cut, and I'll get all the different cuts to make sure I get all the context. Um, and, and what was striking, my first impression, honestly, was like, this film holds up remarkably well. Uh, mm-hmm. I, and I honestly thought, I said, outside of the head spinning th- scene, which did take me out of it because it's so obviously a you know a, a cheap prop, <laughs> right? That they would just do that with CGI now. But all the practical effects, other than that, were really well done. They were well lit. They were extremely well filmed. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought the the pacing was was you know that mid to low early seventies, even late seventies uh, kind of pacing, which I think most audiences might think is plotting today. But I found it really uh, documentary like. The absence mm-hmm. of of a lot of booming musical score, just like it, it had a, a documentary film style to it. it, it led me to feel like this was a plausible. Uh, I suspended disbelief because of that, even though the film is you know from 1973. Um, mm-hmm. And so those were some of the things. Like, wow, I, I, I'm not going to treat this like a documentary in in that it has to be true and has, but I want to make I want to make it feel like it's plausible. Like the scenes that you're creating on the page that when sound is brought to them it's not necessarily cartoonish or hollywood blockbuster you know zips and zaps and explosions and things but there's a there's a a, a plausibility or a realness to it um, and that's not easy to do when you're using just sound the warden appeared he checked his watch midnight it was time the warden Signaled. Behind the mask, Vincent Chucci murmured something. He was praying. That's when the lights dimmed and the murmuring stopped. Four thousand five hundred volts of electricity shot through his body. Number two. 
The muscles of his neck ballooned as if they would explode. His thighs began to glow red. Smoke began to rise from them. A man next to Billy turned away and vomited. The smoke continued to rise, shrouding the black mask, until the twitching stopped. The legal execution of Vincent Chushi is complete. The witnesses filed out in silence. No one could speak. Billy had just watched a man put to death before his eyes. The man was convicted on four counts of first-degree murder. The state sentenced him to death, and yet Billy had to think. Have we beaten evil here? Or has evil beaten us? If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I was struck um, after listening to your work, going back and listening to some old, uh, you know, kind of vintage um, golden age radio shows and realizing how thin the production value was there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because, you know, as a kid, I always remember that these old shows, oh, there was lots of sound going on, you know, because there's no sound on the radio now. Right. Um, unless you're in, in a, a produced piece for some reason or a spot. Um, and, and, Here's all this tapestry going on in the background, but listening to it again now, in light of what you did, I thought, wow, this is actually incredibly thin. This is lazy foley. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think part of it's technological. It was done, some of that, I mean, some of those shows were done live. I'm not sure exactly what show. Of course they were, yeah. Yeah, so that, obviously, if we were doing this live on a stage, it would be a little bit lighter, but... Um but even By the then, way, if anyone wants us, if anyone wants us to do this live on a stage, you know, <laughs> please reach out to us because I, I, I for one would consider it. Yeah. Just because I want to see Jeff go nuts on the other end of the stage. Yeah, yeah, I, it would, it would be possible. It would, we could totally be possible. Technology makes it possible now.
Now, you did some interesting, because obviously we couldn't use, this was true for both Psycho and Exorcist, but because of licensing issues, because the, the people who own rights, publishing rights, performance rights, et cetera, can't seem to figure out how to uh, price their stuff for podcasters or how to make it easy for podcasters to, or, or affordable for podcasters to purchase rights for this music. So we didn't have any music rights right. from these movies, and we didn't use any music from these movies. So Correct. talk about the original music for this and kind of how you came to that. Um, so again, inspired by the film, I, I love the fact that Friedkin chose, and, and I always thought it was an aesthetic choice, and I think it was, but you know, as your podcast revealed, it was also kind of like a last-minute thing. He had no score, and then he's commissioned a score, and then he didn't like it, so he threw it out, and he ended up having to like just drop needles on records and try to find some music for it at the last minute. And that's how Tubular Bells came out. And then he just found, dug these avant-garde 20th century composers like uh, Penderecki that play this really strange avant-garde classical music. And he just sprinkled some of that stuff in through artistically. I mean, it was extremely well done. It wasn't overdone at all. But that was, it's like, okay, that's, I can, I can work with that. Um, Something like you know, huge scores and something with the iconic scores are hard to mimic, um, and and do mm-hmm. them and do them well without sounding like cheesy knockoffs. So, wait a minute, you mean Gone with the Wind? Inside Gone <laughs> with the Wind would be difficult. Inside Casablanca, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think from that perspective, those were those were more. I think for me at least, they were more uh, it helped me. Okay, that's that's good. That's creative restriction. I'm not going to use a big orchestra sound for this. Uh, it's going to be much more textural, augmented room tones and and augmented recordings. A lot of it is a lot of the sound in it is actual recordings of real things that have been modified, uh, rather than using synthesizers and uh, and things like that. So that's that's kind of like the inspiration I took from the soundtrack of, of what uh, the movie was and uh, tried to bring it into the podcast too. Much more textural and a- atmospheric than, um, than motifs or melodies or, you know, character themes. Although Friedkin does have a theme that I use over and over again, and that was composed by my friend Steve Uccello for this project. And uh, uh, so every time Friedkin does something, it's kind of got, I call it Billy's swagger. It's kind of got a little bit of swagger. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's that little little uh, uh, upright bass piece. You know, it's kind of has that, uh, you know, when Billy's kind of getting his swag on. And then I had him do, yeah. like, I had him do like reduced versions of it when Billy's suffering some defeats. Um, which he inevitably does in the series. So yes. there, there had to be that. I wanted that theme to be there because ultimately he's still the same guy, but he's running up against, and I think, I forget the language that he used, but it was beautifully put. Um, you know, it, I think it was around the, 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 uh, the, the, base, the basketball thing. It was his early sense of his own self-worth versus the reality that was coming back at him. Mm-hmm. That's right. I think it's worth noting that, uh, just for my part, there were probably about three months of research involved in this, looking at numerous materials, not just internet stuff, but various books. And then another, I think, two months of writing, because I know I'd keep updating you on the writing, and every every now and then I'd send you what I thought was a particularly good scene. And the scenes were all one to two minutes long, a few pages long at most, which really made them nice and bite-sized. But how many hours would you guess you put into this front to back, these seven episodes? Thankfully, I don't. And if you don't want to say, no, no, no. Thankfully, I didn't. I didn't track on this because I. I, It would have been like, wow, am I? 
<laughs> There's no way I'm going to get my hourly rate out of this one. <laughs> this was totally, uh, you know, the material warranted this, the treatment that we did it. And thankfully, that you know, the, there was a subtle delay in, in you getting me narration, but I had the script uh, before you could actually start narrating. So I used, uh, and I think that might have been like 40 days, 45 days. So I would use that yeah. time uh, to do a lot of pre-production, just look at the script, see what I needed to make. And just, it enabled me to do a lot of custom recording uh, which is not always, even big Hollywood films don't always get that luxury of, of going out and doing custom recordings for their productions uh, because of schedules. Talk about talk about that, Jeff. Talk about some of the custom recording you did. I was particularly intrigued, and I only read this in this interview with you the other day, about how you did the, the room shaking noises. Oh, well, there's, yeah. So uh, Walter Murch is a, a very famous, uh, uh, he, he was a film editor, but also a sound designer. He kind of flipped on both sides. He did Apocalypse Now and a bunch of other films. Anyway, he developed pretty advanced theories about film, how to cut film. Uh, but he's also uh, a well-regarded, highly regarded sound designer, a Hollywood film sound designer, and has very uh, distinct uh observations about that. And one of his things early on about Apocalypse Now was like, well, how did you get this stuff to sound so real? And he developed a concept called worldizing, where they basically like, if you want to have a sound sound like it's in a space with your actors, have the sound actually happening in the space with your actors. So, you know, if he wanted a phone ringing or whatever, he would actually record the phone from across the room ringing if that's where the shot was. Um, so, and worldizing basically meant you could take any sound you wanted, whether it was, you know, any sound that was recorded up close, played over a speaker in a room and record that, and it would sound like the sound was happening in the room. So with all the room shaking and all the exorcisms that you had, I wanted to have a real sense of these room, because you can get rumble recordings, but they sound like they're happening right in your ear. They don't sound like there's mm-hmm. there's any distance between you and what's, what's happening, and and when designing those scenes, I wanted to make sure, like, okay, how far away from me are, are we from the bed? What are we hearing? Are we hearing these voices here? Are, are we hearing the monster or the, the demon over here? Is there mm-hmm. other things moving in the room? So I wanted to bring the kind of, like, bass kind of room-shaking sounds and make them real. So I took speakers and I put them in the crawl space uh, above my, uh, over my, uh, <laughs> my, my house, and I blasted like really low frequency, like <laughs> animal growls and earthquake recordings. And, I, and I, ru- I ran those recordings through it. And then I set microphones up in my house at various places to get different perspectives on this. And there'd be like, you know, it was literally like pictures shaking in my house and, and the little light fixtures would be shaking. And And then I had a device called the I-beam, which is what they install in theater seats and attraction mm-hmm. seats that vibrate the seat. So if you ever went to a 3D uh, event and the seat vibrated with the film or any these attractions mm-hmm. that Disney does, well, these are devices that you can basically install in your home theater setup. So I just got one and uh, decided I'll send low frequencies to it, big rumbles and monster growls and things like that. And then I'll just run it against walls and doors and all kinds of wood cabinets and record that. And uh, that's how all those kind of wooden shaking sounds uh, came to be. I can't stress how what it's like to send the audio off to you to wait 
however long it was until you completed the episode. And it was like a Christmas gift. Whenever that, <laughs> whenever you sent me an email said, here's the MP3, I would say, okay, here I go. Yeah. And away I went and it was just, it was just sublime. I mean, I know that that one pounding, it's early in the series where uh, the, the wall pounds once, the wall pounds twice, and then the wall pounds a third time with a, like 10 times as much fierceness. Yeah. And that it, I thought was just so perfectly sublime. And so many people tell me that, I mean, my own wife can't listen to a lot of this because it's too uh, scary. And um, all of that, as far as I'm concerned, is owed to the, to the uh, audio uh, design that you created. And the other thing I think that we did that isn't done enough is we took time to pause. And you and I had lots of conversations about this where I would say we need an extra beat there. We need another moment here. Yeah. We need to sl slow it down a little there. Just when we think it's, well, I think at one point I said to you, just when you think it's too slow, slow it down a little bit more. <laughs> well, that was particularly true on Psycho. And I think, I think um, more so than on this, as far as like mm -hmm. the back and forth, I think in, the, in working with Psycho, um, my, I was coming at it pretty much cold right out of like commercial radio brain right mm -hmm. and that that brain yeah, is no dead air that brain as you know is about fill every space keep it moving don't right. let don't let anybody breathe where in this narrative structure really that space is okay in fact it's a it's a tool uh to to use and to to not just uh um not just to have it but to but to let people reflect let people feel give people a breath right <laughs> give them a chance to breathe and you when you watch film film does this remarkably well too um, and television, episodic uh, serialized television is is do prestige TV is doing a very good job with this. So by the time we got to Exorcist, I think I instinctively had a better sense of that, even though there yes. were there were times. But the material I think was so much more intense that when we did something intense, it really demanded some space, like just just chill now. And I liked playing with the the dynamics of this series a lot uh, of shifting. Uh, from softer moments to, to louder moments and louder moments to softer moments. I think, too, that, um, you know, just as a, in a film, um, when you can't see what's happening, when a dark room, when you walk into a dark room, that's scary because you can't see anything in there. Yeah. Well, the audio equivalent is silence. Yep. I mean, silence is the dark room. So we use that as often as we could. And so, yeah, I was thrilled the way you integrated all that. Now, talk to me about the demon noises because... Yeah. These were, I think, uh, I think a hundred percent you, if I'm not mistaken, right? Well, except for the, so yeah, there's basically two levels of of demons in this. There was ones that were basically saying the words that you scripted and you were saying as the narrator, right? So there were those right, demons, which was intentional, That's right, right? Where your voice was kind of became the demon. Demon, give me your name. I am he himself, Loki, Mastema. And then there was the other demon, which was, um, the, it's the first thing you hear on the cassette tape, right? At the very beginning when, when uh, we go to the tape and then you, you say, it's the first voice that says, this is inside the exorcist. From Wondery, I'm Mark Ramsey, and this is part seven, the final chapter of Inside... So that was processed with a bunch of software. Um, and basically there, there's, I don't want to get too into the weeds, but it's just software. No, please that, don't. Yeah, yeah. It's software that enables you to kind of adjust 
couple of characteristics of vocal uh, sounds. Basically, you can adjust the the gender um, within within ranges. It gets very wonky and, and chipmunky if you go too high, and it gets too, mm-hmm. you know, you had the one note you did have about demon voices. You didn't want that classic stereotypical deep voice growly demon um, that was a big thing we talked about yes that yeah. we didn't that every movie and tv show that shows an exorcism shows someone possessed by a demon who sounds exactly the same and we wanted to avoid that yeah yeah and that was a great note again it's like i i love going against conventions of the genre uh which is why i didn't use any metallic sounds in the score and the sound design because that's so prevalent in modern horror too it's just a lot of very mm-hmm. shrieking scraping metal sounds which are uh, are um instinctively scary or alarming but uh it was challenging not to use those and still maintain that kind of tension um, so there's basically software to do that to kind of adjust people's voices to to change the gender. So I was going for something a little bit older and androgynous, but slightly female. But it, since we started with male voices, it still kind of maintains some of that androgyny, and that is inspired mm-hmm. by the film. That's kind of what Friedkin wanted to do. He didn't he didn't want to have. Uh, they tried processing uh, Linda Blair's voice through a bunch of techniques available at the time, and, and Friedkin didn't like it, which led him, as you know, to hire a talent who was a woman yes. but had a very uh, powerful—I wouldn't say male, but it wasn't your husky. Your, it wasn't it was your a- right your classic uh, female sound. So it it, uh, it created a, a very unnerving. Um, androgyny to it and then and this is more in the category of i think spoilers so anyone who hasn't listened through to episode seven please stop now but we wanted to do something different at the end because at the end the demons reappear but they reappear in a in a different way and i was fairly thin with my description there but we did talk through conceptually and the one thing that we talked about um, that I think now, for anyone who listened to the series and who knows the movie, you will hear it differently now, is I said, go watch Black, the movie Black Christmas, the original 1974, I think, uh, Black Christmas. Yep. Because there's a character there, I think his name is Billy, if I remember right, um, who is living in, <laughs> living in the attic, but nobody knows he's living in the attic. And he calls, he has a phone up there, so he calls down to the house and you only really hear him through the phone. And as you said to me, because I said, watch that movie, and you watched it, and you said to me, he sounds crazy. And then you said, you're right, crazy is crazy is scarier than demonic. Hello? Hello, Rob. Yes? Hi, Rob, this is Mark Ramsey. I'm that guy who's doing the podcast about the making of The Exorcist. I know you asked me not to call you again, and I'm, I'm, I'm terribly sorry for bothering you, but I'm almost done with the series, and, and there's just a, a few things I'd like to ask you, if I can. Rob? Hello, Rob, are you there? We can see you. I told you not to call. I think he's there, but he's not saying anything. We told you not to call. And I wasn't sure when I sent it to you. It's like, does this work? Like, ah, that's why I love. That's why I love as much as I love getting in and being able to like execute on my own vision. 
uh, I really do love giving giving the work over to someone I trust, and I trust you to give it that. F- you're hearing it for the first time. You have something I don't have. That's I've been right. working on it for a few hours or whatever. I can't possibly know what it's like to hear this for the first time anymore. So to have you hear it for the first time, and you're hearing it cold, and whether you get it or not, that's really informative to me. Uh, it's like, okay, yeah, I, I took that for granted because I've been hearing it for the next last three hours, but you're right, that doesn't come through or that could be brighter or that could be less uh, accentuated. So though that kind of uh, feedback. Um, and so I, when I sent that to you, I was like, I know this is what we what we talked about, but I'm not sure it works and yeah. and it worked. And then I heard some from other people yeah. too that heard it and they thought it worked, so. Yeah, that's, uh, that's putting it kindly. They thought it worked. In other words, they were terrified. <laughs> Which is saying a lot. When you're driving around listening with some earbuds in your ear, to be terrified by something is, yeah. is, yeah. is, really, uh, is yeah. really a strong uh, statement. I like getting this stuff from you. And as you know, I tried to be very discerning in my notes because for a couple of reasons. One, because, well, the biggest reason was this, and that's I didn't know if I was right. You know, for me to give you a note, unless I felt strongly about something, and I always differentiated with you. I would always say, I feel strongly about this. I don't feel strongly about this. I could go either way. And here's just a thought. Feel free to outvote it. Um, Because anytime you're doing a collaboration, you need to yield to the experience of others to a degree, unless you feel really strongly about something. And so much of what you did was far beyond my expectation that I had to assume that a lot of what I wasn't sure about was simply beyond my understanding. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, true, and, and and I think the other level to that too is that at the end of the day, um, this is not made for other sound designers or other authors or other writers right. or other narrators. It's it's for it's for somebody just driving to work or who wants to relax at the end of the day and sit down on their couch and and put on a few, put it on an episode and just uh, and just listen. Um, so it has to work at that level too, right? So it has to totally work at the non-expert how how it was made level, and that's what I was really hoping. And and you did provide that check for like, does this? Mm-hmm. I didn't get that, or you know, one of the things that we did early on was the quick cut and perspective change. Like we're outside yes. and then we're inside, and and you're like, I know what you're doing. It's very cinematic. I know it. I know it from film, but I don't. I don't know if it works here or not. Right. We're just that's kinda, right. We're just kind of like. Well, let's just do it. I mean, you know, I think it works. You were unsure. You you knew, but you were questioning because you have a film you, you film study background. Uh, you're a fan of films. You're aware of the technique. But this is the first time I think either of us had actually heard it done in audio. And we're like, it's kind of disorienting. We're not really sure that this is... I mean, I didn't... That's like one of those things like I, I didn't get any comments about it. So I'm not sure if that... Neither did I. If that, was a, did I. if that was a problem for people, if they could follow, or if it just was like, I think is the, is the space maturing now where those kind of techniques aren't really seen as, they're used to seeing that kind of thing happen on TV and film, so to hear it on a podcast is not really that um, uh, questionable. So, and, and by the way, that whole notion influenced heavily the, 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 the design of this thing because, I mean, here I was. I was going back and forward in time. I was going back and forward in terms of who was speaking. Sure. Um, it was some, some dramatic shifts. And, uh, I mean, dramatically, I mean, I think Hitchcock in Psycho was killed, what, an episode? He died in episode two, I think? Yeah. Of five? <laughs> yeah. So I was going back and forth in time and I was talking to someone who's um, head of a, a production uh, company and a television production company. And I said, here's what we did. And, you know, we were hoping that it would work and people would make sense of it. And he said to me just what I knew he'd say to me. He said, look, you know, too often people underestimate the audience. But the audience is capable of a whole lot more than you think if you really 
uh, give them that chance. And I've seen in the comments, you've probably seen too, some people you know, lose track of where they are, they can't follow. But on the other hand, I think once people who are into it keep track of it, um, it should be a little bit work. It should be a little bit effort. It should be a little bit challenging. That's what attention is. Attention is given. Attention is earned. Yeah. And sometimes attention is demanded. And that's what we try to do. I have one last question for you, and that is, I've got to ask you about the Easter egg. Oh, right. And we've <laughs> got to talk about the Easter egg because this was a little secret that you had that you revealed to me very early on. There's an Easter egg hidden in the audio. Yeah, yeah. And the only way, Jeff, to... First of all, what is the Easter egg? Uh, so the Easter egg is if you use a piece of software to look at the audio waveform, the audio as it appears, uh, not just in, in amplitude, which is what you would normally see if you opened up your, your audio file in just a regular digital audio workstation or any kind of audio player, but what's called a spectrogram where you get to see the frequency content of the audio. In other words, you get to see where all the energy is in the high frequencies and all the energy is in the low mm -hmm. frequencies on a, on a graph. Um, what I was able to do is, is to embed an image in the audio of a demon and uh, <laughs> didn't tell anyone it was there except you. And we debated whether we were going to put it out there. I'm just like, eh, let's just see if anybody finds it. Uh huh. And uh, leave it to the Russians. Uh, some guy posted on Twitter that he discovered it. So um, yeah, just the other like today or yesterday, right? Yeah, yeah, it was this morning, I think. Yep. And there it was. He he posted a picture of it because it's literally you can actually see it when when all of that uh, data is visualized. Yeah. You can actually see it. And what's funny about it is there's a line in the series of how Billy Graham argued that, the de quote, the devil is in every frame of that film. Right. And here you would put the devil literally <laughs> into the audio. Yeah. And it was yeah. only now that I have to believe that guy was just thrilled when he discovered that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I tried to translate it on uh, Twitter because I think that's where he posted it. And the, the Twitter translate didn't translate as well. So I translated it in Google and it, it, he, he was kind of like, look what I found. This is kind of strange. <laughs> <laughs> Strange may be a little bit terrifying. But yeah. yeah, if you want to see what that looks like, by the way, just go to the Facebook page at uh, facebook.com slash Inside Exorcist and you can uh, get a look at it. Jeff Schmidt, I want to thank you so much for your amazing work on this series. We shall work together again. That's a promise and a threat. <laughs> Uh, both, both kinds, a promise and a threat. If you want to tap into Jeff's universe uh, and reach out to Jeff uh, personally, you can find out more at jeff-schmidt, uh, S-C-H-M-I-D-T, uh, dot com. That's jeffschmidt.com. In the meantime, um, we are so grateful for your listening to the series Inside the Exorcist as well as Inside Psycho. Thank you for enjoying it. Thank you for spreading the word. And thank you for listening to this special bonus episode.